We're in Ezekiel, we're in chapter 38, looking at verses 14 through 23. We're going to talk about a notable earthquake tonight, and so the title of our message is Quake Boss. What? Stop it. Not so much television as movies, because you've got to love submarine movies, don't you? Nice segue there. The Hunt for Red October, K-19, Run Silent, Run Deep, U-571. Crimson Tide certainly one of the best. I'm pretty sure it's in Crimson Tide where there's a, a scene of dialogue where they actually talk in the movie about what are the best submarine movies, uh, which is kind of interesting to me. Then there's Das Boot. How many of you have seen Das Boot? Boat? I say boot. Das Boot. I heard from experts it was a classic. We rented it. Don't know, uh, or didn't know, it was in German with, no pun intended, subtitles. To this day, Pam won't let me forget that I fell asleep for most of it. The parts I recall are of a German sub trying to complete its mission in WW2. They go from a storm to depth charges to a surface attack by a fighter plane. At one point, they dive and can't resurface. Just before reaching crushed depth, they land on a shelf. Just before running out of oxygen, they resurface and limp home. They return on a Christmas Eve to an attack on their facilities. Finally, the captain, suffering from multiple bullet wounds, watches as the sub sinks and then collapses and dies. I hope I haven't ruined it for you. Reading about what's going to happen to the armies of Gog when they invade from the north reminded me of the futility of that movie. It's a doomed invasion from the start. Before ever getting near Israel, there's a mighty earthquake. It's so disorienting that the soldiers turn upon one another and kill one another. If you think you can escape the earthquake or being hacked to pieces by your comrades, you're wrong. Because next comes pestilence and bloodshed and flooding rain and great hailstones and fire and brimstone from out of the sky until you are wiped out. God will defeat Gog and all the world will watch in awe. So let's get into this. Verse 14. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? The idea here seems to be that you will know this invasion is imminent on that day, that is, when Israel is dwelling safely in her land. This idea of her safety has been our litmus test for when this invasion might occur. It doesn't mean Israel will be without enemies. It means she will have a sense of safety. And that's why I tend to think the invasion is after the world leader we know as the Antichrist enters into a peace treaty with Israel which will guarantee her safety. The only other time this would make sense is at the end of the millennial kingdom, just before the final revolt against God that's led by Satan. And some scholars see this invasion by Gog as the one spoken of in the Revelation at the end of the millennium. We're skeptical of that for reasons we've already discussed, such as the opposition is much more broad and inclusive at the end of the millennium than the invasion described here. Here we spent a long time talking about the nations that are involved in this invasion from the north. At the end of the millennium in the book of the Revelation, that invasion 
uh, involves people from all over the globe coming against uh, Jesus in Jerusalem. And so uh, while there are similarities, there are also vast differences. And so verse 15 says, Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. God's place, we learned earlier, or Gog, excuse me, Gog's place was the remotest parts of the north. I'm told that if you draw a line from Jerusalem to the North Pole, it will come very close to modern Moscow. Now, I'm going to share something with you that I think, maybe it's just me, but it's, it's blowing my mind uh, in light of Bible prophecy. Uh, and it uh, could all just be a coincidence, but it's true, it's factual, uh, it's not sensationalism. Actually, I can't make up stuff like this. Uh, it's so good. Do you know that the North Pole is shifting? How many of you know that the North Pole is shifting? You're very smart. I didn't know that. The magnetic North Pole, that is, not the geographical one where Santa is. Just in case. I don't want to ruin anybody's fantasies. So the magnetic North Pole is what we're talking about. It's shifting. Listen to this quote, National Geographic. Over the past century, the pole has moved 685 miles from Arctic Canada towards Siberia, says Joe Stoner, a paleomagnetist at Oregon State University. (laughs) It's the name, isn't it? Joe Stoner. Hey, what are you doing up there? I'm a paleomagnetist. Yeah. See, I told you I couldn't make this up. At its, this is, I'm still quoting now. At its current rate, the pole could move to Siberia within the next half century, Stoner said. It's moving really fast, he said. We're seeing something that hasn't happened for at least 500 years. Lorne McKee, a geomagnetic scientist at Natural Resources Canada, says that Stoner's data fits his own readings. The movement of the pole definitely appears to be accelerating, he said. Another Nat Geo article said, and I quote, Earth's magnetic North Pole is racing towards Russia at almost 40 miles a year due to magnetic changes in the planet's core. And so here we are, we're reading about Ezekiel, Ezekiel 38, 39. We've spent a lot of time identifying the nations that are involved. It it appears that Russia is the key nation and that this invasion is going to come from the uttermost parts of the north. And where is the uttermost part of the north? It's at the North Pole, not the Santa North Pole, the magnetic North Pole. And now we find out that for reasons that we don't really understand, well, scientists understand the core and all that. I mean, there's, there's a scientific reason for it, but why it's happening now and all, the, the North Pole is moving closer to where? To Russia, to the uttermost parts. Of, so the uttermost parts of the north will be Russia. Uh, it's more than I can take sometimes, this stuff. It's just fascinating. So, back into it. The only possible country that is to the extreme north of Israel is Russia anyway. The country of Russia begins north of the Black Sea in southern Russia and is the only country north of the Black Sea. Since we do not have many choices here, one out of one, it's clear that Gog's country is modern-day Russia. Now, I've already talked about the size of the invading force that comes against Israel and why we believe they will literally be on horseback. 
Uh, if it's near the middle of the Great Tribulation, certain geophysical changes will have occurred, making possibly traditional warfare impossible. And so verse 16, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It'll be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hollowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. God claims ownership of the land and relationship to the ethnic Jews, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham uh, and his uh, descendants. Both of them are his. Now, allow me to go off on a tangent here for a minute. I, I, you know, I do this from time to time. It's suggested by the fact that Israel plays so prominent a role in the Bible. As I was, I really, as I was thinking about this this week, I thought, I started thinking about, you know, God says Israel's my people, the land is my land, and you start thinking about how prominent Israel is in the Bible. Israel actually, I'm, I'm just no surprise to you that it's one of the Bible's main subjects, mentioned well over 2,500 times. Now, Jacob touched on different systems of theology and especially uh, systems of prophecy tonight. Any system of theology that suggests God is through with Israel as an ethnic people or that another group has somehow replaced Israel, well, they're just wrong. And if it's wrong on Israel, such a huge and important subject, it might be wrong in other areas as well. There's a lot of theological discussion uh, about God's foreknowledge, about God's election, about predestination. Some of you study theology, you read books, you, you uh, are really deep into this, and I appreciate that. I think we always need to keep Israel in that discussion. Paul says of Israel in the New Testament, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Romans 11.2. The nation of Israel is often described as God's elect nation. For example, Isaiah 45, verse 3. Baker's Evangelical Dictionary has this entry regarding Israel and predestination. From the call of Abraham to his descendants, in particular the progeny of Jacob, and uh, who became Israel, they are predestined to fulfill the purpose that God has for them. They're to be seen in the world as his people, holy and obedient to him, living to his praise, a priestly nation bringing the knowledge of God to other nations. Now, there are systems of theology that focus on very particular definitions of predestination, of election, and foreknowledge. Those same systems of theology deny or they ignore the place of Israel as a nation in God's plans. And so it struck me that if they are clearly wrong about Israel's predestination, election, and foreknowledge, then why would we think that they are right when discussing those doctrines in relation uh, to us? Uh, it may seem like a stretch, but I don't think so. So I guess all I'm saying is you can't ignore Israel and still have a really viable system of theology or a systematic theology that makes sense. And you can't really talk about things like election and predestination and foreknowledge without factoring in God's election and predestination and foreknowledge of Israel. Uh, and so just keep, that, keep all of that in mind uh, always keep Israel in mind as you're reading the Bible. Israel is the apple of God's eye. Uh, there is no replacement for Israel. Uh, we read the Bible literally. We understand what's happening. 
Jesus came and he offered the kingdom of God to Israel, the promised kingdom. And he was rejected by the leadership of Israel. And so that kingdom, we call it the millennial kingdom, that kingdom has been postponed. It hasn't been nullified. It hasn't been voided. No one else has taken the place of Israel. God is disciplining Israel. He is preparing them. We're the beneficiaries of that because now uh, the call of the gospel goes out to the entire world. But once this church age is over and we are resurrected and raptured off of the earth, God will deal with his people Israel again. And he will bring them to a saving knowledge of their Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord will come back in his second coming and he will establish that kingdom in a literal, pure way. And so, bear all that in mind. Back to our text, verse 17. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? And it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. Now this begs the question, where in the Old Testament has God spoken of this before? He said, hey, my prophets have been talking about this. Well, the truth is, Gog isn't directly mentioned in any other Old Testament passages, so scholars have a hard time with this. I haven't found their answers very satisfying. They say, for example, that other nations in other prophecies are typical of Gog. Uh, Jacob did a good job tonight of talking about types. And um, it may be true, but it, it seems a bit of a stretch. Because God here says, my prophets have spoken of this invasion before. And so for us to say, well, it, we can't find it. And so maybe it was kind of wrapped up in these other invasions. I think it's a stretch. My own suggestion would be this. I'm not saying it's right, but in thinking about it, I thought this through. There are a lot of prophets and their prophecies that didn't make their way into the Old Testament. For example, we know that Enoch was a prophet who prophesied, but we don't know everything he said. The text might be referring to an oral tradition of prophecy that would have been well known to the Jews in exile that Ezekiel was addressing. It's just a thought. We have a tendency to think that, that everything has to be in the, you know, in the Bible. Uh, and, and everything we need to know, everything that's for life and godliness, is in the Bible. It's in the canon of Scripture. But it's clear that, um, you know, well, Jesus, for example, using him as an example, John, at the end of his uh, wonderful gospel, says, the world could not contain the books if we wrote down everything that Jesus said and did. Uh, and so we understand that the Gospels are a summary of all of the healings and the miracles and the things that the Lord did. And I believe that the Jews probably had an oral tradition of prophecy uh, that w God didn't see fit for it necessary to make it into the Word of God. And so when, when Ezekiel's talking and, and uh, the Jews of his day who were the original audience, they understood. Just like they understood who Gog was. We have to try to determine it 2,500 years later. Well, Gog? But if you were alive 2,500 years ago, you'd know that he was talking about the people from the uttermost parts of the north, the ancient Scythians, etc., etc. And so, so that's my assessment of what could be going on here. How is God going to show his wrath and defeat this invading army? Well, here it goes. 
My jealousy, verse 19, and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there should be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountain shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. A divinely appointed earthquake will be so severe that it will disorient Gog's forces and apparently cause them in the confusion to fight each other. Um, are, are you afraid of earthquakes? Who, who's afraid of earthquakes? Right, to be honest. Okay. Who's not afraid of earthquakes? Raise your hand. Yeah, see? It's a California thing. Uh, people who live other places... I love this about people who come from places where there are devastating tornadoes and floods and hurricanes and, and you know, things that just you really should be afraid of. And then earthquakes really bother them, you know, and stuff. But uh, this is going to be a devastating earthquake. And, and these guys are apparently are not ready for it in that magnitude, and it disorients them, and they start fighting each other. Now, remember, they are from many different nations, all the nations we talked about, and there's always a suspicion, even though they are allies against Israel, they're suspicious of each other. And so they begin, so the earthquake's happening, terrible things are going on in the earthquake, and they start hacking each other to pieces. Now, Looking at the earthquake for just a minute, whenever there's an earthquake, what two things do you always ask? Did you feel that? And where is that centered? I mean, those are the two things that everybody wants. to. You know, hey, did you feel the earthquake? No. Well, it was centered in San Bernardino. You better call your parents. You know, that kind of a thing. This earthquake will apparently be felt just about everywhere. The entire world's attention will become focused on the fact that the earth just shook. It's clear from this passage that Israel and their excellent modern military, including nuclear weapons, will have nothing to do with the destruction of Gog and his allies. This is all God, all the time. In addition to the earthquake and all that goes with it, the Lord will use other means of defeating his enemies, as indicated in verse 22. I'll bring uh, him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I'll rain down on him, on his troops. And on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. So the first half of the verse tells us the Lord will bring a pestilence that will cause bloodshed and death in those of Gog's army. Uh, what this is, I, I don't know, but, and I don't want to know, uh, quite honestly. Uh, we would say that it's, you know, it sounds like chemical warfare, but it, it's something God uh, does uh, then the second half of the verse describes things just raining down out of heaven upon them. Uh, torrential flooding rain. Uh, I've been in scary rainstorm. Have you been in a really scary rainstorm? You know, you can't see and you, you know you shouldn't be driving and, you know, that kind of thing. But that's going to be something like the only, uh, I mean, it's going to kill, it's going to be so severe it's going to kill people. Uh, and if that doesn't kill you, then hailstones are going to target you. And if that doesn't kill you, then fire and brimstone will. You wouldn't want to be anywhere near that field of battle. Everywhere you turn, there is some terrible way of being killed. Verse 23, Thus 
I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And so here at the end it says that three things will be the result of God's defeat of Gog. First, God shall magnify himself. He, what happens there will focus the attention of the nations of the world on Israel. And when these invaders are miraculously defeated, God will suddenly be magnified. It, it will bring him into uh, focus in a magnificent way. Uh, because everyone will know it wasn't the Antichrist who might be marshalling his army to come and help. It wasn't Israel and her, uh, you know, amazing nuclear arsenal or craftiness. Uh, it, it, there was a divine intervention, an earthquake, uh, people killing each other in a disoriented military, stuff coming out of the sky. Uh, it, it's really a tremendous miracle. Second, God will sanctify Himself. He will demonstrate to all the watching world that He is separate from the laws of nature and rules over them to affect history in our space and time. I'm taking this use of the word sanctify in the sense of being separate from. And so God says, I am separate from the normal course of events, but I affect them uh, to accomplish my purposes. And third, the nations shall know the God, that God is the Lord. In context, it means that everyone on the earth will know that God is the God of Israel, the Lord of the earth, just as He's been revealed through the Bible. It doesn't say that they will believe in God. Uh, there are passages in the Revelation that talk about men trying to hide from God and uh, His judgments. But everyone on earth will have the awareness that the God of Israel is the one who destroyed this army, defeated this invasion, and is fighting for his people. Uh, and it, it will be um, a magnificent uh, and terrible event. Though we don't anticipate being around to see this massacre, believing we will be resurrected and raptured long before it occurs, we still see signs that it is drawing near. Uh, I don't know God's timing. No one does. Uh, but I find it fascinating that the nations spoken of in this passage just happen to be lining up as allies against Israel uh, in our day and age. And right now the focus that we've had over the last several months in our prophecy updates has been the nation of Turkey, which plays a prominent role in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which up until this year has been a staunch ally of the West and of Israel. Uh, and now we see them, uh, an increasingly hostile Muslim country, cutting off diplomatic ties with Israel. Uh, interesting development in light of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then you're watching the Discovery Channel or National Geographic and some scientist is telling you that the North Pole is shifting and it's going to pretty soon be in Russia. And so the uttermost parts of the north are going to be Russia, just like the Bible says uh, the invasion is going to come from that country. And so uh, it's interesting, is it not? It's fascinating. 
we, nevertheless, we believe that the coming of Jesus for the church is always imminent. Uh, we see these things, we get excited because they seem to verify what we read in the Bible. It, it causes you to wonder how anybody could deny that these things are true. But we're not really waiting for that. We're, we don't really care what happens to Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. I mean, he, he, he may come and go. Uh, Turkey may relent. The European Union might fall apart. We're just kind of looking at things and saying, hey, this could be that. I, you know, we're going to do a, a, an update this Sunday on uh, RFID again, the radio frequency identification and, and how it's getting more and more uh, pervasive and invasive and stuff. Is it the mark of the beast? Probably not. But, it, you know, we, we see that kind of technology and all that. Regardless that, whether all these things are going to take place this year or a decade from now, the Lord Jesus Christ could return to rapture the church at any moment. It's an imminent event. Nothing needs to occur before uh, it occurs. These are definitely the last days, though. God is getting nations lined up according to His centuries-old prophecies. He's even getting the North Pole lined up according to His prophecies. And so I say, we keep looking up. Amen?